You're listening to TIP. Hi there. My guest today is Matthew McLennan, who is co-head of the global value team at First Eagle Investments. Matt oversees an enormous amount of money, about $90 billion, on behalf of millions of investors. After 14 years at Goldman Sachs, Matt joined First Eagle back in 2008, when he was handpicked to be the successor to a legendary investor named Jean-Marie Everard. In my book, Richer, Wiser, Happier, I wrote a whole chapter about Jean-Marie and Matt, describing their distinctive approach to a challenge that all investors face. Namely, how can we build wealth in a durable way over many decades in such an uncertain and wildly unpredictable world? This question of how to become a truly resilient investor seems particularly relevant right now. As we've seen very dramatically this year, everything can turn upside down in an instant, with a long and glorious bull market suddenly giving way to a vicious bear market, a brutal war in Ukraine, and runaway inflation. Over the last few years, I've spent a great deal of time with Matt discussing this question of how to invest prudently for the long term in a world that's full of these unpleasant risks and surprises. We first spoke about this for my book, and have continued since I became a senior advisor to his investment firm last year. One lesson that I've drawn from all of these discussions is that really the first priority for investors should be simply to survive and stay in the game, even in extreme conditions, instead of fantasizing about getting rich quick in the short term. As Matt once told me, you want to be structured to participate in the march of mankind, but to survive the dips along the way. This is a simple but really important truth that applies both in markets and life. You have to position yourself to survive the dips. In today's conversation, Matt shares some invaluable insights about this philosophy of what he calls resilient wealth creation. Thanks so much for joining us. You're listening to the Richer, Wiser, Happier podcast, where your host, William Green, interviews the world's greatest investors and explores how to win in markets and life. Hi, folks. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome today's guest, Matthew McLennan. Matt, it's lovely to see you. Thanks so much for joining us. It's great to see you too, William. Thanks. I I wanted to start by asking you about your early years, which were unusual to say the least. Can you tell us a bit about growing up in Papua New Guinea and then really off the grid in Australia? Well, my my parents went to New Guinea really for adventure. They they were Australian and are Australian living in Brisbane today, but they were adventurous souls. And and my father was a land surveyor and he, he got a job up there helping to mine, survey the mining communities. And my mother and father went up there thinking they were going to live this uh, particular adventure. And there was one E-type Jag I heard up in Papua New Guinea that they planned to buy, but they had me instead. And my first six years were really up there before the independence of Papua New Guinea in the 1970s. And, you know, it it was an amazing place to be a child, uh, very free, uh, walking through the markets and a sense of adventure. When we moved to Australia, we wound up living in a little town called Montville. And Montville was a, a thriving metropolis of about 400 people. And uh, we had a, a beautiful little home on a block of land that my parents had found. It was their dream block of land. But like their dream in Papua New Guinea, reality turned out to be a little different from what was envisaged. The home didn't get connected to the power grid for the first seven years. So we had this 
beautiful little cedar home that they helped build. And there was a rainforest on one side and again, a a fairly idyllic place to, to grow up. And it was a house full of books. While we didn't have electricity, we had gas lamps and a cast iron stove. And you know, if you wanted to shower, you could put a black plastic bag out in the sun and heat it up and hang it under a tree with some burlap around it to, to, to take a shower. So it really was living in the sticks. And it wasn't until I went to a high school in Brisbane at a boarding school, because there was no high school in my town, that I got to experience uh, the big city. So it was a, an unusual but a very happy childhood. You told me a great story once about your father deciding that you should get a TV. Can, can you tell us that? Well, we were all you know, very excited about the notion of having television. It's one thing to have books, but occasionally as a kid, you want to watch some television. And my father got a television and he hooked it up to the car battery. So we, we had a night in watching television, which was very exciting. But the next morning when my father went to go to work, he reversed out and dragged the TV through the front door behind him. So um, that was the end of the television experience, at least for a while. And, uh, you know, it was, but those kind of little mishaps, uh, sort of amusing sort of punctuation marks on a childhood. And, uh, you know, I, I sort of remember it fondly. We, we even had a, a koala come into our house once and the house was built around uh, these uh, eucalypt, uh, eucalyptus stumps and the koala came in one night and, and climbed up. And my grandfather, who was a doctor, realized the koala wasn't very well and wrapped him in a blanket and, and took off some ticks and uh, nursed him back to health. And he was back out in the forest the next day. So it was a, a childhood full of little surprises. Can you tell us more about your grandfather? Because I, 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 we've talked about him in the past, and my sense is that he was a very formative figure in your life, and also a, a really quite remarkable figure. Uh, he, he was a formative figure for me, and, and I guess everyone is the beneficiary of having various mentors in their, in their life. And he was one of the first mentors for me outside of my parents, obviously. And he was an interesting man because he was a doctor. And, um, but, but he, aside from being a doctor, he uh, had a, like my, my, my mother and father really, had a bit of a spirit of adventure. And he went to live in Antarctica in the 1950s. And the Australians, the Russians, and the Americans had to share a common base for survival back then. It was in the early stages of the Cold War. But he lived in Antarctica for 18 months. And, uh, you know, I think that was um, an incredible experience for him because he, he was a philosophical person by nature. He, he went to uh, discover the truth in his, his own words and realize that he couldn't, um, that, you know, however much he thought it was asymptotic in nature and um, he could approach various truths but never really touch them. And that left an impression on me. And he, he came back and um, when he retired from his medical practice, he, he developed a real passion for gardening, and, uh, which passed on to my mother. And, you know, I learned a lot from that as well. I remember you telling me once that he said you're an idealist and you believe in an absolute truth and you, you need to learn that there's only relative truth. Can you talk about that? It seems like an interesting insight to have been given early on as, a, as an investor. It was. As a, as a child, you know, I always liked puzzles and, and you know, trying to crack the code on whatever it was, solving a Rubik's Cube or figuring out how to win at any given game. And I think he, he could see very clearly that, you know, I like to, to get to an absolute truth, like the, the proof of a mathematical equation. And, you know, he introduced me to this notion that uh, life is actually more complex than the, the sort of simple games or truths that I was trying to unravel and that much of truth is, is unapproachable. And, and in fact, it wasn't until I was in college and, and many years later reading other works that, you know, I realized that this 
was a sort of a whole field scientific methodology. And I became pretty interested in Karl Popper, who wrote about the notion of falsification. And Karl Popper had a term for this. He, he said that, you know, things aren't true. They just have verisimilitude, the appearance of truth. And, and I, but I think ha- having had that notion instilled in me early on was useful because it, it sort of sowed a seed for becoming at peace with the notion there are certain forms of uncertainty that, that you just can't unravel. And, uh, you know, you need to sort of respect those spaces a little bit. And I think it has informed how I've uh, approached investing in, in later years. But, you know, it's also popped up in different forms of work. I mentioned Karl Popper, but, you know, I, I remember Fisher's work when he talked about the difference between risk and uncertainty, you know, risk being something that you can narrowly quantify with statistics and uncertainty being where you don't even know what the range of distributional possibilities are. And, you know, going on to folks like Steve Wolfram in the field of complexity, which we can no doubt talk about later, but having that seed planted by my grandfather, that sort of metaphysical source of angst, if you will, uh, was actually a good thing uh, with the passage of time. However disappointing it was for me at the time to realize that I couldn't learn all of these absolute truths. How did you end up as an investor, given that you had all of these very broad int- interests? You've always been very interested in history and literature and science. You, you've been very involved with public health as a philanthropist. And your parents were kind of adventurous, right? And your, your mom was an artist, among other things. It never struck me that the world of money was the, the paramount thing in your family. What, how did investing become a way to bring together all of these disparate interests in the world? Well, I think, in, you know, in some ways, there were various motivating forces at work. One may argue, uh, being of Scottish origins originally, way back when, that there may be some atavistic tendency there with money, uh, but that's probably just wishful thinking on my part. And then there was necessity. I mean, I think despite the fact that I had a really fortunate childhood in, in, in terms of being very happy and being exposed to a lot of thinking and life experience, you know, we we didn't have a lot of basic necessities. And so I think there was a, a motivational force of wanting to live a more comfortable life, not for material purposes per se, but for a sense of personal freedom, not feeling encumbered by one circumstance. And, you know, that, that had some motivating force to it for me. And then, you know, my grandfather, who I mentioned before, he would invest in the stock market on the side. And, and, and I remember in high school, I just became interested in stock markets and for all of the wrong reasons initially. You know, they were, um, this was the time uh, back in the, uh, the early 80s when you had, you know, the early days of the leverage buyout booms and, and people were creating uh, fantastic wealth. And there were a lot of sort of speculative enterprises uh, that were being formed that were sort of rolling up other businesses. And it, it seemed like that there was this sort of mystical elixir that uh, one could learn about. And at the same time, in about grade 11, I had a... Um, I had a math teacher who wanted to create an investment club uh, at high school, and he figured out he had discovered the pattern in the roulette wheel, to quote Fred Schwed from Where Are All the Customers' Yachts? And as Fred Schwed said, you know, uh, for every new person who thinks they've discovered the pattern in the roulette wheel, it's unfortunate for them because <laughs> they, they haven't. And he, he had studied Elliott Wave theory. And I thought, well, here's, here's something interesting. He can look at the passage of historical prices and figure out what's going to happen next. And all of this seemed to have this kind of allure to someone who wanted to have uh, freedom in life. And at the same time, my grandfather, who was this sort of long-term uh, philosopher, gardener, you know, collected wine, whatnot, you know, he gave me a small 
amount of shares in a company uh, which was a, a small but fairly dominant regional bank. And you know, time took care of any illusions that I had because the investment venture with the math teacher went to zero pretty quickly. He certainly couldn't see the future and employing leverage when you can't see the future is a dangerous thing to do. And meanwhile, this little company compounded out quietly, almost unnoticed, never into a large amount of money because it was a you know, few hundred dollars, but it got me thinking. And you know, as I sort of sifted through all of this in my mind, I thought, well, I really have to learn about this in a more disciplined way. And that's when I chose to study finance and accounting at college and you know, got exposed to some more empirical elements in the world of finance and you know, start to read about other investors. And meanwhile, all of these wheeler dealer entrepreneurs were blowing up in the market because financial conditions got tight in the late 1980s. And so I think it was just having the benefit of seeing certain schemes unfold and then unfurl and then certain simple truths play out over time for the patient. Before you joined First Eagle back in 2008, you you spent a big chunk of your career at Goldman Sachs. I, I think ultimately about 14 years and ended up managing a global investment portfolio there. And you obviously had to navigate some pretty treacherous periods during the late 90s with the dot-com bubble and, and maybe earlier, I guess, also with the Asian financial crisis. What did you learn from those experiences at Goldman about what it takes to be a resilient investor and build enduring success? Well, the late 90s were difficult as a value investor. And I, you know, I'd had the benefit of some interesting mentors at Goldman as well. You know, Paul Farrell had worked with Lou Simpson at Geico, who taught me the Buffett way of thinking. You know, Mitch Cantor, who'd worked at Bernstein, who was a deeper value investor, who really got me to think about how businesses normalize over time. And so I had these value influences on me and I was just getting my own legs as an investor. But then the late 90s uh, ended up being just a, a woeful period for value investors, rather like the period we've just been through, history does rhyme sometimes, focusing on cash flows and price was not a profitable thing to do uh, in, in the uh, internet bubble. And, and it was very challenging emotionally. Uh, I was obviously uh, quite a bit younger at the time and, and you know, you're trying to navigate a period. But I, I think what it solidified for me is this notion that sometimes you, if you've got a disciplined mental model, you need to be willing to be short social acceptance for periods that are quite a bit longer than you'd feel comfortable with. I mean, when, you, when, when one grows up and one goes through grade school, you get uh, essentially promoted each year to the next grade. You get your grades every semester. Uh, and even in the early stages of a career, you typically get annual feedback and your annual bonus. But investing is a, a lot more like gardening, where the seeds you plant intellectually or the business investments you make often play out over five to 10 years. And I realized that the time frame that you know, one had to sort of apply to assessing the feedback loop was quite a bit longer than conventional timeframes. And you had to learn to manage that emotionally, which I, I think was a good lesson to learn. Uh, relatively early on uh, in an investing career because those things repeat themselves. And I saw a lot of people leave the business because you know, they, they, they weren't willing to sort of stick it out, if you will. And I think that was a, a really formative moment for me. And I, I have a friend who was a very successful uh, trader and he used to trade exotic options. And he said to me once, he, he said, as he, as he retired from the field, he said, he, he learned the hard way that prices often have a way of causing the greatest amount of pain to the greatest number of participants before they settle at the right level. And maybe that makes sense. You know, if markets are in equilibrium, prices force out 
the weakest hands over time before settling at a, at a stable level. And I, I guess all of those experiences back then were formative to sort of disentangle the mental model and approach from the near-term results. Do you think it helped in a sense that you had had such an unconventional childhood that you, were, you weren't naturally someone who was part of the tribe? You were probably by your own wiring, but also by your own conditioning you were outside the herd. And so maybe it was easier to think for yourself than it might have been for many other people. I think there's some truth to that, William. I, I, you know, I, I, I think that I, I definitely came in with an outside perspective. And I, I think as well, I take comfort in the purity of ideas. And so, you know, so I, I think the combination of coming at something from the outside and seeking purity in ideas, even if you, I'd recognize by that point there, there weren't any absolute truths, you know, I think it was those two things that were, were very helpful in, in enduring an environment like that. And indeed, uh, you know, when I spoke to Jean-Marie, who hired me to First Eagle uh, many years later, he said, you know, one, one of the things that gave him comfort about hiring uh, someone like me was that I had endured an experience like the late 1990s. It was almost a kind of a condition precedent to feeling comfortable that you'd have the stamina to do it again. Yeah, and that that period had been such hell for him, right? I mean, he, he, he. I, I write about this in my book, Richard Wiser Happier. The degree to which he was he was sort of at war with the world, at war with the market, at war with his bosses, who who, you know, were like, why don't you get this new paradigm and buy uh, and buy dot com stuff? And he no, said, no, also, I, I, more with himself. I definitely had to face those pressures. I mean, I, I was dragged in front of uh, one of the partners for lunch, and he's like, well, you know, why aren't you buying these hot IPOs? It's free money. And I, I tried to explain the fact that it's a sucker's game, the IPO market, because you spend all of your, you know, your time uh, researching businesses that haven't proven their incumbency. And secondly, you know, you tend to get the smallest allocations of the best businesses. And so there's a, a lot of adverse selection in that market. And so, you know, I, I'd spent a lot of time thinking about why I didn't want to spend my time, you know, focused on that. Uh, but it seemed like there was free money to be had. And, and I remember a conversation with the retirement committee at Goldman Sachs, where they were sort of questioning, you know, the, whether there would be any mean reversion uh, in this dot-com era, whether everything had changed. And I, and I recall back then, saying that, look, you know, you can look at enterprise value to cash flow or revenues. And yes, some businesses will live into high valuations. But one of the metrics I couldn't get around was the enterprise value per employee of some of these uh, newly listed companies was quite large. In fact, I, I, I said to the partner at the time, I said, you know, would you pay 30 times as much per human for this business as the market cap of Goldman Sachs? You know, you, you feel like you've got good people. Would you pay 30 times as much? And by the way, in a labor market where unemployment rates were below 4%, so how are they going to hire the people to live into that valuation, even if they can find um, the best people? And so I guess looking at strange things like that gave me the the conviction to to stick it out. Um, But it it was a trying time. So you mentioned before that you found solace in the purity of ideas. Were there particular ideas that you were clinging to, particular principles that you'd learned maybe because Paul Farrell had introduced you to the writings of Buffett and Munger. I mean, what, what were the sort of main tenets that you'd figured out that kind of protected you from the craziness and irrationality of the late 90s? Well, you, you know, it's interesting. If you're a bond buyer, 
you know that you've got a contractual principle that's due to you in five years' time or whenever the bond matures. And I think that gives bond buyers a lot of peace of mind that they can endure short-term vicissitudes in, in quarterly reports and the like. And I think it's difficult as an equity buyer because what you're buying is ostensibly a perpetuity. But I think what, what gave me the conviction, the more I thought about it, was that you know, ultimately you're buying access to a cash flow stream. And you know, if, if the business were cash flow generative, and it was stewarded by management teams that were willing to distribute at the lion's share of those cash flows to you, that ultimately um, arithmetic would work. <laughs> that sentiment could shift around the multiple relative to that cash flow a lot in the short term. But ultimately, the math would converge upon the arithmetic of the cash flow. And so I think that gave me a lot of comfort. Uh, you know, and, and, but even so, it wasn't absolute because you saw companies that had highly inflated valuations that were able to use that currency to go and acquire other businesses that were cash flow generative. So they could turn hope into reality. And you know, that's, that's always a bit distressing when you see that as a value investor. I think by and large, it was just the nature of the fact that you know, if you bought a real business and it had a real cash flow stream and you had a long enough time horizon, arithmetic was pretty powerful. It's, it's almost like a law of gravity, right? That if you, if you had the right time horizon, things would shine through. Can you talk a bit about time horizon? Because one thing that you've explained to me over the years is this idea really of defining what our goal is as investors. And, and obviously, there are so many people who come into the market and see it just as this kind of casino where they're rolling the dice as fast as possible, hoping, you know, expecting that they'll make 30% in a month on crypto or whatever it is and chasing into whatever hot asset there is. And it seems to me that at a certain point, you decided in a very clear-minded way that your goal was different, that you were pursuing something that was much more long-term. I, I don't know if I'm articulating this properly. No, it's, 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 it's actually a really interesting question because I, I'd say that as more time has passed in my career, my time horizon has, has continued to grow longer. Um, and you know, I, I'd say, you know, to give you an analogy, if, if you felt that you were going to pursue a quantitative strategy that had a small edge, imagine you were flipping a coin that was slightly biased. Uh, well, then you'd want to flip that a lot of times, you know, to magnify a weak signal. It's akin to having a short-term uh, horizon for investing. And a lot of people are very focused, they're obsessively sort of trading the quarter, uh, if you will, and, and, and trying to pick up on sentiment shifts. And I guess the more I thought about it, the more I realized that that field is, because it, it offers the allure of large returns if done successfully, it attracts a lot of competition. Whereas, you know, you look at what Buffett's done, he looks to buy forever. And so, you know, he's very focused on the limiting arithmetic uh, of, of the investment. And um, in a sense, he's looking to make one good decision as opposed to a series of decisions. Um, the more decisions you, you make, the more difficult it is to make excellent decisions. If you're selective with the decisions you make, um, the odds of making an excellent decision go up. And so I, I, I kind of realized um, gradually over time that having a longer time horizon put me in a less competitive space for the market. There are less people willing to think about the next five to 10 years. Most people are much more focused on the next 12 months or the next quarter. And so part of it's just you know, thinking through those things. And then I think you've got to re realize as an investor where you can be most comfortable in your own skin. The things that I like to uh, analyze in a business were the nature of its market position, um, how it had evolved over decades, the likely longer term trajectory of that business. And 
and you know the the longer term decisions that management were making and and the potential alpha from all of those things plays out over a long period of time not a short period of time valuation mean reversion often takes you know 5 plus years if you bought a good business at a time of an issue you know the the impact of a, a free cash flow generative business producing some form of accretion through share repurchase or M&A or better dividend yield takes time to play out or a management team that is a good steward of capital that compound accretion tends to take time to play out and so the things that attracted me tended to be longer term variables and you know if i, I treated myself i i was less good at trying to pick up on the short term scatter pattern and mosaic and and predict near term earnings surprise and so I went to where I felt most comfortable and in in if if you'll permit me one sort of uh sort of digression here I I mentioned that my grandfather was a was a gardener and and he passed that skill on to my mother and um this this little home that we built uh she was an ardent gardener <laughs> in this home and as a as a child I always wondered why she went to the effort because there was always some issue you know there was a there were drought conditions uh or the bamboo root would would spread to somewhere where it wasn't meant to be or um there was some weird fungus or virus she was always having troubles whereas um there's a gentleman uh who lived next to us who mowed his lawn uh, every week and it just looked pristine and clean and we had a, another house uh behind us at the bottom of the rainforest where he just lived amidst the rainforest and what i only realized the wisdom of my mother's uh, long-term strategy when i came back to the house some 20 years later with children my children and the garden had had really grown into this resplendent um beautiful space um it had been selectively curated over time you know whereas the house next to me was still being mowed the lawn was still being mowed every week but there was nothing to show for all of this activity it was like the active manager turning over the portfolio uh once a week and the uh the 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 gentleman who had his house down the hill behind us um had some fire damage i heard at some point and so you know the passive strategy of just letting the forest grow around you wasn't necessarily the safe strategy my my mother had worked in all of these fire buffers and things like that so selectively curating something uh and letting time take its course is something that doesn't seem like a very well rewarded activity in the short term but you know when you step back um and let time play out um it it can be very rewarding yeah it's interesting because it's it's not sexy and it doesn't appeal to our yearning for instant gratification but because of that there's so little competition and it has the virtue that it actually works it's a combination of less competition and i think patience as well it encourages you to wait for uh ideas that are truly uh stacked in your advantage and and i think that's an interesting perspective that i try to convey to new analysts who who join our platform because when an analyst shows up they they they're tempted to produce a new idea every week and like actually no i'd like you to do a, a lot of work every week but i'm really looking for one or two ideas every year or two that are exceptional and it's just a different way of thinking i'm curious also whether there's a parallel um between gardening and that kind of selective curation over over decades and your interest in both wine collecting which you obviously inherited from your grandfather and also I think in collecting art which you used to do seriously I don't know if you're still collecting old masters and the like but is the are there are there parallels are there things that we can learn from 
the sort of selectivity and curation in, in wine and art that apply in the stock market as well? I think so, because, you know, when I look at a business in the stock market, I'm most often attracted to something that survived the test of time, that is, has some form of advantaged incumbency. And I think the same can be said if you're a wine collector or an art collector. Um, you know, if you're a wine collector, there's certain terroir that is just advantaged where um, people may have been growing uh, vines there for over a thousand years and where the, the cumulative effect of that is that the ecosystem around that uh, plot of land is, has very complex soil and has, it has unique geographic uh, exposures, but it also has the sort of software benefit in inverted commas of cumulative learning of how to tend that uh, th- those particular vines in that particular location. It's often passed on from generation to generation. And so, you know, I, when I initially started collecting wine, I was looking for um, good value propositions and I, st- I still enjoy good value whenever I can find it. But over time, I realized that there are certain wines that are just fundamentally advantaged and that um, those wines tend to also age themselves well. And it's interesting from an investment standpoint, what can happen if you let time and quality combine, because um, if you think of the analogy of a nice bottle of wine um, that matures gracefully over 30 or 40 years, as it matures and its real quality goes up, the real quantity goes down because bottles of that wine and that particular vintage get consumed every year. And so there's a reason the equilibrium price for a fine bottle of wine can go up exponentially over time. Quality improves, supply goes down. And, you know, and I saw that analogy with businesses because if you own an advantage business uh, over time, with the passage of time, the, an advantage business tends to benefit from kind of brownfield concentricity, um, the ability to uh, invest around the fringes of your business with uh, marginal economics that are much better than someone who is trying to get into the business with greenfield investment. Um, and so time aids the intrinsic value of a good business. Meanwhile, a good business is producing free cash flow, so it could be shrinking its shares outstanding, rather like bottles of wine disappearing for any given vintage over time. And the real value could compound up over time. And the same can be said for art. There's a lot of enthusiasm for contemporary art, um, just as there is a lot of enthusiasm for growth stocks. People, people want to own the, the new, new thing. But if you think about the big movements in art, they tended to precede big movements in physics and mathematics and language, often by a couple of generations. And sometimes artists were intuiting how to perceive things uh, long before it was converted to words and symbols. And But there are obviously a lot of false starts along the way in the world of art. Um, I think it's going to be very hard to predict which contemporary art uh, becomes an old master in in 100 years' time. But you you can buy art today from a master that was painted four or 500 years ago that survived the test of time. And it may look mundane uh, relative to the sizzle of the contemporary art market, but it's more likely than not to maintain its relevance if it has done so already for four or 500 years. And and so I, I think the appeal of identifying incumbency in those collectibles market has sort of bled across to the way I think about looking for businesses. It, I, I think we should talk in some depth about how to be a resilient investor and how to succeed over, over many decades. But it, it seems like we should mention first this idea that in a way forms the intellectual backdrop of your approach, which is just a respect for, for entropy and yeah. the fact that we live in a world where um, uh, you know, things fall apart, the center cannot hold, as, as Yates said. Can you talk about 
your fundamental respect for entropy as a kind of ironclad law of life and how that shapes your approach to looking for things that are likely to endure in a world where not much does endure? No, it's, it's, it's a good question, William. Um, you know, entropy is probably one of the few absolute truths. You know, it's a second law of thermodynamics uh, that any form of order is essentially transient. And perhaps it's the fight against entropy that's sort of gotten me interested in old master art or great wine that can survive for generations and, and uh, from vineyards that have been planted for generations or a business that uh, has a slow fade rate you know, relative to the typical business. But if you think about the economy as an ecosystem rather than as a machine, productivity uh, happens every year, productivity growth. And you know, over the last century, we've, we've grown productivity close to 2% a year. But the dark symmetry of productivity is that the existing pool of companies won't control the future profit pool in perpetuity. New businesses get created that chip away at the margins at existing incumbency. And so entropy is um, a fundamental uh, principle in investing. And you know, when you go through business school and learn about asset pricing, you're really only taught to think about beta risk or you know, systemic risk. But uh, idiosyncratic risk is, is interesting to think about as well. And, and, and in fact, entropy is a form of systemic risk uh, because change uh, in the economy, the overall improvement in the economy in, imputes that existing companies will grab a, a smaller share of, of the future pie um, given enough time. And so, you know, I've, I've focused a lot on this question. And, you know, the, the paradox of it is that buying businesses that have been around for a long period of time that have demonstrated persistence in some ways can be a safer strategy than trying to buy a business that's growing a lot today. Um, because many of the, the businesses that are growing a lot today are in industry verticals where market share positions move around a lot. And so by definition, your ability to capitalize um, their terminal earnings in any given period of time is, is low because uh, easy come, easy go, as it would relate to, to market share shifts. And so you know, we, we do like to try and fo- focus on businesses that have a stickiness um, to their market share uh, over time, high customer retention rates, to try and sort of slow the curve uh, of entropy. You know, and it's, it's you know, we, we, we approach it with a great deal of uh, humility and respect. And we, we, we you know, we, we recognize that even our favorite ideas are going to get disrupted at some point or another. So in a way... And I think it's important because, you know, the, when people think about a growing business, they tend to think, well, if the stocks, if, if the business is growing revenues 10% a year, I'm growing my intrinsic value 10% a year. And it's not actually the case because trees don't grow to the sky. So that, that rate of growth will fade. And you know, markets become penetrated. And secondly, even if you dominate a market, substitutes get created. And so you have to recognize the fact that as a business matures, it will trade at a lower multiple than it does when it's growing. And so the fact that there's fade rates to growth and that the the ultimate multiple of a mature business is going to be less than a growing one means that the growth in intrinsic value is going to be a lot less than the growth in revenues today. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Today's episode is sponsored by Range Rover Sport. Range Rover leads by example with their dynamic design that rises to the occasion. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capabilities, coupled with signature Range Rover refinement. The third-generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet, redefining sporting luxury. 
It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification offering next level comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit light driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning PIVI Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Today, I want to share such a tool with you called Meka. Meka is the AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Meka does a lot of the heavy lifting of sifting through financial statements and company data and delivers it to you nearly instantaneously, and the best part is that it's 100% free. Try it out today and ask Meka questions like, what is the financial health of Microsoft? How much cash does Copart hold on its balance sheet? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than $500 billion, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Kosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the holy grail of investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate, how to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds, how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. So in a world of entropy where things tend toward disorder over time, how do you actually build a portfolio filled with businesses that are truly resilient? What, What qualities do they need that are likely to make them less perishable? Well, you made an interesting comment before about sort of knowing where you're going. Uh, and I, I remember um, Seneca saying, you know, if, if you don't know to which port you're sailing, no wind is fail, f- favorable. And I, I think, you know, for, for, for me as an investor, you know, I, I like the idea of resilient wealth creation a lot. And I recognize that's not for everybody. Some people are investing for a different reason. Some people are investing because they want to max out rather than grind it out. And sometimes you'll come to surprisingly different conclusions depending on what your sense of travel is. So if your goal is to get large outsized returns, um, then it's going to drive you more towards portfolio concentration, the use of leverage episodically, and um, the desire for control uh, so that you can um, influence the underlying companies that you're investing in. And many of the great fortunes that have been made have those three elements in place. On the other hand, the combination of concentration and leverage and the time sink of control 
devastating if the laws of entropy work against you in an unanticipated way. Um, if there's a, a, a new product that disintermediates what you focus on. So you might have bought what you thought was a great business, but then the world changes. And if you're concentrated and levered and, and all of your time is sunk into controlling that business, then you're in a sort of troubled spot. And so my, um, my friend Guy Spear has a um, my friend Guy Spear has a friend who or mentioned someone who who had a hedge fund where I think he had one stock in the end. And he he um he so believed in it and was so totally wrong that he now runs a cafe or a bar somewhere in, in the US. And so so yeah, the 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 idea of resilient wealth creation resonates really deeply for me. I, I have like this sheet on my this this screen on my computer with this low tech list of the investments that I own, and literally the phrase at the top is resilient wealth creation because I'm trying to pound into my head the fact that I, I don't need to be in a hurry. It's just not the goal. Well, if, and if you think of the the difference that it, place that it can lead you to, if if that's the port to which you're sailing, the first thing is that you become far more at peace with the notion notion of diversification, and you know, I mean, you, I mean, William, you, you introduced me some time ago to Tom Gaynor at Markel, and I think he described it well. He's, he, he discussed this notion of emergent position sizing, and that is that every investment you go into, you think is going to be a sound investment, but, you know, the future plays out in, in different ways. Some, some businesses are the victims of entropy. Uh, some are transient beneficiaries uh, of uh, substitution uh, going in their favor. And so, you know, having a diversified portfolio is something that we're actually quite at peace with. And it's an expression of humility. It's an acknowledgement that there's only so much we can know. And you know, going back to the discussion on Karl Popper or, or, or Wolfram and complexity, I've become convinced that there's only so much one can know. And so diversification is an acknowledgement, a humble acknowledgement of, of, of that fact. But it's also an interesting strategy because if you're willing to invest globally as we are, diversification doesn't mean look, that you look like a passive representation of the market. We might own 100 securities out of a universe of 5,000. Um, and so you can still selectively curate the garden, to use the analogy of before, um, but to um, do it across industries uh, and across countries in a way that gives you a degree of resilience. And to the extent that you've paid decent cash flow multiples and you've identified what you think is incumbency uh, for individual businesses, it helps produce an error tolerant approach because uh, if the starting free cash flow yield compensates you for the cost of capital and, and, and a certain number of these businesses end, end up doing reasonably well, then you're able to um, cover the costs of those that, that don't do as well. The other thing I'd say, other than diversification, is that I guess the opposite of leverage is to travel a journey with deferred purchasing power. And so if you look at our portfolios, William, you know, we have you know, roughly 20% in a combination of cash and gold and diversified foreign so short-term so foreign sovereign bonds. And so I guess it's a recognition of the fact that a nonlinear system like the economy is going to have episodic periods of crisis. And, you know, hopefully the businesses we own are well positioned to endure those. But if we, if we have some net cash and gold, we can put it to work in very distressed environments and convert it to the ownership of enterprise on very advantageous terms episodically. And the willingness to kind of wait with some amount of your portfolio, I think has been a, a kind of a, an important element of how we've generated resilience historically. I, the final thing I'd say is that when you have a, a portfolio with 100 or so investments, it would be foolish to think that you could play a control or influence role in all of those investments. And, and what we've done instead is we've essentially created an ecosystem of managers who act like owners. 
And so it's more about the ecosystem that you're self-curating than you having to have control. One of the things that's also really unusual about your portfolios that, that very much fits with this idea of, of long-term selective curation like a gardener is there's incredibly low turnover. I, I was looking at one of your portfolios. I think it's 7.2% turnover. One is 10%. So we're talking owning stocks for 10, 12 years or more. Can you talk about that? Because it seems... It's, it, it seems like a lot of the portfolios run by other fund managers that are very diversified, they tend to be kind of obtuse investors who are over-diversified over and then trade too much and have too high expenses. Yours is very different. It's like very thoughtfully diversified and at the same time, incredibly patient. You're buying stuff and then you're, you're holding it. Well, part of it's a reflection of the way in which we invest uh, because if you think about an investor who's trying to trade every quarter, by definition, they're going to have a lot of turnover in their strategy. Or if they're looking for the hottest new growth story, that changes every year. So by definition, you're going to have to shift to wherever the pocket of momentum is in any, any given short-term period. So if, if you're trying to trade short-term surprise or you're trying to trade shorter-term momentum, it leads you into the territory of, of being high turnover. On the flip side, if we go back to our discussion about collectibles, whether it's wine, art, or businesses, if you're identifying incumbency, it shouldn't change that quickly if you've done a, a, a solid job of identifying a business with staying power. And so, you know, a big part of, of what we do is, is to try and buy, find businesses that, you know, are going to be around for the next generation and buy them at an advantage price and let the arithmetic play out. And, you know, by holding them for a decade, the arithmetic, arithmetic starts to dominate the short-term changes in sentiment. And, and that's, I think, a, a really important uh, you know, principle when it comes to long-term investing, that you, if, if you're going to go for incumbency and you value arithmetic, you have to give it the right time rise. And rather like it would be crazy for my mother to plant and then sort of tear down the garden every year. You know, some trees take a long time to grow. You've spoken to me in the past about mundane but really persistent businesses and how mundanity is often more beautiful than the kind of hot, sexy stocks that most people are falling in love with and chasing and then dumping and trying to trade in for the younger, prettier model. Can you talk about what you mean by mundane scarcity and, and, and persistence? What's interesting to me, and the beauty of mundanity uh, at its core or apparent mundanity, um, is that it, it rarely leads to excesses. You know, if the goal is to buy um, a quality business, the only way you're going to make money is through some identification of asymmetry between price and prospects. It's not enough to buy a quality business because if, if the whole market views it as a high quality business, it'll be priced for low, low returns. And so it's really the search for unpriced quality that, that's critical. And so there has to be an engine for quality, but there usually has to be an issue. And that's where scarcity is, is kind of the engine and, and mundanity is often the issue. And so let me just sort of define this uh, construct of uh, scarcity value a little bit more. And I think it was sort of obvious in the context of our discussion before, if you're buying a wine from the best block of land in Burgundy, or you're buying an old master's painting from a, 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 someone who painted only very few paintings, that concept of scarcity is very uh, intuitive and easy to understand. When it comes to business picking, I think you have to disentangle two forms of scarcity. One is scarcity in the world of real assets, and the other is scarcity in the form of intangible assets. 
Now, real asset scarcity, I think, is also pretty easy to understand. Imagine a really well-located piece of real estate like the, uh, like the vineyard. It could be an apartment right in the center of the city. It could be a beachfront apartment, or you know, it could be a timber land on the edge of a city where there's optionality to either grow the timber or uh, sell part of that land for higher and better use in any given year. Scarcity in, in the world of real assets could also be um, a company like a gold miner, for example, that owns very large-scale mines at the low end of the cost curve. So scarcity in the world of real assets is usually locationally driven. Uh, on the other hand, um, scarcity is manifest in the world of intangible assets, and usually that's companies that have strong market share positions. Uh, it's the most valuable form uh, of intangible asset. A company that's had you know, 40, 50, 60% market share that's been stable for decades is a scarce intangible asset because that large market share position gives them the ability to have a degree of pricing power through the cycle, reduces the volatility of their cash flows, improves their margins, but it also gives them the scale to outspend competitors on R&D, product development, density of their uh, sales force so that they can provide more duration to that uh, advantage. And so, uh, you know, when we're, when we're thinking about scarcity in the world of investing, it's typically a well-located physical asset that's of a long duration character, or it's a company that's got a good market share position in a stable industry that's doing the things that it needs to do to, to perpetuate itself into the future. Now, those kinds of businesses often trade at, at high value. So the reason we sort of refer to mundane scarcity as, as attractive is that if, you've, if you want a shot at buying quality at a reasonable price, it can't have too much obvious allure. And so, you know, that's, that's the key that what is often mundane uh, to the average investor ends up being beautiful to the long-term compounder because it means that you can buy in at a reasonable multiple of cash flows. You can benefit from that scarcity over the long term. And if the business never scales the heights to an outsized valuation, you can hold it indefinitely with a margin of safety. And so it enables you to make a single decision and therefore have a very long average holding period. I remember during that first period of COVID when the markets were tumbling, I interviewed you around then, I, I think for Barron's, if I remember correctly, and you had been buying, I guess all the restaurants were closed around the world suddenly, and you were buying a, a company, I think in Japan that made ice machines for restaurants. So it was something where you kind of knew, knew that it was eventually going to be good, that we're going to go out to restaurants again. And so it had a kind of mundane scarcity, but at the same time was out of favor. Is that, is that a pretty good example of what- That's, It's a good example. I mean, it, the company you're referring to is in, in uh, ice, ice machines for commercial establishments, whether it's restaurants or hospitals or schools. And um, there's actually a fair amount of precision processing that goes into an ice machine because, you know, you don't want bacteria to creep in there. It needs to be reliable. It's at the core of a decent customer experience in a restaurant or a, any catering facility. And you want it to be reliable and, and, uh, and therefore having the network of aftermarket support and sales force helps embed that business. And they've, you know, concentrically expanded that business into strong position in uh, refri commercial refrigerators and ovens. And so businesses that you think are lacking in a certain amount of appeal can be quite stable over time. And because the business has good economics, you know, you don't have to worry uh, at a time like COVID that they're going to go out of business. Their customers may be suffering for a time, but they, the customers will come back and uh, restaurants uh, change all the time, but the need for ice machines doesn't change. And so having a, a niche like that can, you know, be quite uh, helpful for the patient investor. I was struck also I was discussing with someone from First Eagle was saying, yeah, like good examples of this are like 
this company in Switzerland that makes elevators. And I think there's a Japanese company that makes bike components. It's, these are wonderfully unexotic, unsexy, and yet weirdly central kind of necessary things. Can you talk about a couple of these other businesses yeah, that no, embody so, well, that actually, resilience? Let me just comment on the, on the two that you, you mentioned. Um, you know, in, in the case of the bicycle components, you know, we've owned a stake in a company called Shimano for a couple of decades now. So it's hmm. truly been a long-term holding for us. And Shimano has over 50% of the market for high-end bicycle brakes and gears. And people know the, the brand of the brakes and gears more than they know the brand of the bicycle. I went to a, um, a farmer's market with my daughter once, and, and she found some old comics that were on sale there from the early 70s. And it was, I think they were advertising the Browning Bicycle Company, but um, the big feature of the ad was the Shimano brakes and gears. And so this is a company that has basically devoted itself to perfecting a single process and getting to global distribution scale, one local market at a time. And w- what's great about Shimano is, um, you know, it's this, um, the bicycle brakes and gears is the key part of the business. They're also big in fishing tackle, uh, another um, <laughs> extraordinarily exciting market. But that the bicycle brakes and gears are 80% of their market. But the business has really, you know, compounded out at, at a high single digit clip over decades because they've added more value to the bicycle brakes and gears. And, you know, pe- people are, uh, as they become more energy conscious and whatnot, are adopting um, healthier habits. Uh, and, and so bicycling uh, is certainly uh, one of them. And recreationally, uh, having some fishing tackle is not such a bad thing either. And this business has, has compounded out gradually. And meanwhile, management have been good stewards. The second great intangible asset of the business, aside from market share, is the extent to which management act like owners in their stewardship. Because management accretion can, can change on a compound basis your investing experience. If you think of a typical business trading at 10 times cash flow, the management team is going to reinvest the enterprise value of that business every decade. So management quality um, is a key intangible asset. And here, the business's family run, uh, the Shimano family, uh, they're a large shareholder and, and uh, they run the business for the long term. And over the last 20 years, they bought back about 40% of the stock. They don't have any debt. They have net cash. So rather like the ice machine company, you don't have to worry about financial contingency. So that's another good example. And, and you mentioned the elevator company. This is a Swiss company, not a Japanese company like the, the other two. But um, the company that uh, my colleague was probably referring to there was Schindler. And um, Schindler is the second largest elevator and escalator company in the world behind Otis. They've been around since the late 1800s, so they, they benefit from favorable incumbency. And um, even though there are a handful of large makers of elevators and escalators, they tend to be more concentrated in given geography. So Schindler is particularly strong in Europe. And the beautiful thing about this business is that, you know, the stock, stock uh, you know, this is a newer investment for us because Everyone's worried about what's going on in China and the construction um, cycle globally, but the money is really not made on new elevator installations. It's made on the maintenance of existing elevators. Typically, an elevator needs to be maintained for 20, 30, 40 years after it's installed. And the majority of their EBIT comes from these long-term maintenance arrangements that are very sticky. And this is a company that, like the other two, truly thinks about the long-term. Not only do they have these long-term annuity-like maintenance uh, agreements for their business. But over the last decade, they've doubled their R&D relative to EBIT to focus on embedding technology better in the uh, elevator. So if you use the Internet of Things and sensors, um, you you can maintain the installed base of elevators 
much more reliably and cheaply than just doing it all manually. And so being ahead of the curve there and like the other companies I mentioned, they have no debt, they, they have net cash and you know, management's been willing to buy back stock uh, in the past. You have the, the Schindler family uh, behind this. They own close to 40% of the company, uh, the Schindlers and the Bonards together. And so you have this long-term stewardship of a sort of a stable cash flow generative business that's out of favor right now because everyone's focused on the construction cycle in China. And so whether it's an ice machine maker or a bicycle brakes and gears company or an elevator a company with long maintenance agreements, these kinds of businesses, essentially like eclectic royalties on small slices of world nominal GDP. And it comes back to the point before that I made about diversification. These families have done well uh, concentrating, but you know, to the extent that we invest other people's money and you know, we, we want to provide for resilience long-term, if we can have a portfolio of these kinds of businesses scattered around different industries and parts of the world, it's, it surely provides for a more resilient experience than just betting on one. You know, and I, I don't see the elevator being disrupted anytime soon, but you know, who knows? You talked to me when, we, when I was interviewing you for my book, you talked to me about this beautiful image of seeing the global markets as a piece of marble and then chipping away pieces that you don't want, really whatever promotes fragility. And it, it seems to me a really important idea. And I, I'd, I'd love to get a sense from you of what kind of countries you chip away and say, nope, that's too risky, what kind of sectors you chip away. And, and then we can talk about s- specific types of business where you're just like, no, it, it would bring too much fragility to the portfolio. Well, it, it really starts um, bottom up for us, I, I would say. So, first of all, uh, we, do, we do have a strong preference for businesses that have already demonstrated some form of incumbency. As Bruce, Bruce Greenwald, who's one of our senior advisors, said, something is likely to be around as long as it's been around. <laughs> it's like a, the envelope pr- uh, principle in physics. And, and so, you know, just the simple starting point that, you know, we, we, we're looking for businesses that are time tested. And, you know, this is an important starting point. The second thing is that price does matter. I mean, it's, it's not enough to find something good. You have to find something that's good, that's better than people think it is. And so, you know, the, the, the situations that get us most excited are when we find a kind of blue chip business that's had a lost decade. You know, so it's, you know, if, if someone comes to me with an idea and says, oh, it's a great business, but it's also trading at a decade high valuation, it's less likely to be appealing. And so, you know, when, when you think about incumbency, it's like prime numbers. You know, if you look at a sequence of numbers, only so many of them primes. And there's actually a rule in math um, that can show you the frequency of prime numbers. But if you had, you know, three or f- a sequence of three or 5,000 numbers, probably only a low double digit percentage of those numbers will be primes. And I think it's the same for business. So immediately by trying to focus on the equivalent of prime numbers or businesses with the, you know, advantaged incumbency, you're, you're, you're taking out 80% of the market. And then if you're saying, I, I, I want to focus on the subset of those that um, have, have, haven't gone through the best decade, you know, there's an engine and an issue, then, you, then you're taking out at least another half of the market. And then you know, when, when we speak to the analysts, there are other sort of splitting questions, I sort of call them. And what do I mean by splitting question? If I gave you a dictionary, William, and I said, you know, find a word, you wouldn't go through the dictionary sequentially, word by word. If I told you serendipity was the word, you know, it's kind of towards, you know, the, the back third of the dictionary, you'd flip it open there and you'd, you'd get closer. It might take you four or five parsings of the, the dictionary to get to the page, not 800 pages being turned sequentially. And 
you know, what I try to go to the analysts and do is say, like, what are the handful of splitting questions that can, can find us the, the one in a hundred investment opportunity that makes most sense? So part of it's incumbency, part of it's price. And then, you know, you know, there are some other questions that we would, we would ask. Like we would look at what we call the cash audit. You know, how has the business lived and breathed over the last decade? You know, has its balance sheet really grown at a measured clip? You know, can we understand how the business got to where it's at? Um, there's a lot of businesses that you can't, and, and that, that takes out part of the, uh, the universe. And then of the, those remaining businesses, some of them are run by very expeditionary management teams who um, don't have much of an equity stake in the business and are much more like uh, bankers or bureaucrats than they are like uh, owner managers. And, and so by asking a handful of questions bottom up, we basically say no to 90 plus percent of the universe. And, and I think that's a really important you know, way in which we approach markets is, is asking the right splitting questions. And, and then occasionally, you know, there are some, some macro observations where, you know, you cast a, a wary eye as to what can go wrong. And, you know, I, I think it's a combination of bottom-up splitting questions and the, the odd top-down insight that, that helps steer you away from trouble. I love this quote. You, you've mentioned Karl Popper, the philosopher, a couple of times, and there was an article I was reading again of yours last night that you'd written, I think, for the CFA Society many years ago, where you quoted a wonderful line from Popper where he said, the main difference between Einstein and an amoeba is that Einstein consciously seeks for error elimination. And it seems like that's really central to your approach, constantly, constantly seeking for error elimination. What you were just saying, it's like you're, you're looking for what's wrong with these businesses as well, right? Whether, whether their business model can be substituted easily, whether management is diluting you or has the wrong capital structure or whether you're overpaying. Can you talk about this idea of, of consciously looking for what's wrong, which is a very Charlie Munger-esque kind of approach to life. Yeah. I mean, we, we don't have any perfect investments. Like if, if you were to look through our portfolio, and I always get stressed out when someone get, you know, asks me the question, give me your best idea, because I, I, I just don't have one. I wish I was smart enough or had enough conviction to do so, but we're very focused on, on what can go wrong. And, and you know, some, sometimes it helps to look at things indirectly. I don't know if you ever saw, there was a, a documentary, it got mixed reviews, but I thought it was an interesting one um, called Tim's Veneer. Uh, Vermeer. Um, no. It was about an inventor, Tim Jennison, I think his name was, who was trying to recreate a Vermeer painting. And he, he had an interesting theory, which was that, you know, because everyone's been mystified for centuries, how Vermeer could so perfectly capture the shading of light. And Tim Jennison had this idea that maybe Vermeer used a camera obscura. And so he, when he was painting, he had a, a superimposed image and he could compare the likeness of the edge of what he was painting to the actual color palette of the image and, 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 and do it very closely. So rather than trying to paint the image directly, he looked at it with reference to a, a, another image. And the reason I go down this discretion is that, you know, we, we've long been owners of gold. And, you know, gold, gold is somewhat paradoxical um, because people say, well, why do you own this useless lump of um, metal? And the paradox of gold is its, its utilities and its uselessness. Um, if you were to look at a periodic table, it is the equivalent of the best block of land because it has this unique combination of inertness and density on the periodic table. And the inertness, which you know, m- makes it uh, useless in some ways, is also what makes it a natural perpetuity. It doesn't chemically react. It's what gives it permanence. 
And it's also what gives it its low beta characteristic because it's not primarily used in the industrial cycle like copper or oil or iron ore. And so it, it has an innately low correlation to the business cycle and the long duration. And that's what's made it you know, nature's hedge asset, if you will. And the reason I mentioned gold is that people say, well, you know, gold is useless because it, it doesn't have a yield. Um, well, I just pointed out that it, it is useful as a hedge. And even though it doesn't have a yield, because it's in scarce supply, coming back to incumbency and scarcity as a theme today, there's, only, <clears throat> there's less than one ounce of it per capita in the world that as the supply of money has gone up over the last 50 years um, after the breakdown of the Bretton Woods Agreement, gold hasn't offered a yield, but it has accreted in line with world money supply. And so it has offered a return and um, it hasn't suffered from beta risk. It hasn't suffered from you know, management dilution risk. And, you know, it, it, it hasn't uh, suffered from uh, entropy. Uh, you know, it's, it's still in the periodic table occupies its position of incumbency. And the reason I, I go through this whole digression on gold uh, and Tim's uh, Vermeer is that it's useful to think about how a business stacks up relative to a lump of gold. And, and it's interesting to me that, you know, most businesses have some fade risk. You know, they, they have a generational half-life. Secondly, most businesses have beta risk. You know, they, there's a risk that, you know, you'll buy them and then you'll find yourself at the bottom of an economic cycle and you might be a forced seller at the worst time. And most businesses have some form of uh, agency risk. You know, managements on average make decisions that are dilutive. Uh, I think there's only a small number of managers that are truly accretive in nature. And so, there's a reason businesses need 5% free cash flow yields. It's to compensate you for fade risk, beta risk, and management dilution risk. Uh, and you know, otherwise, you know, if you had none of those risks, you could just own a business and it would pace with nominal GDP. Um, but the fact that it has shortfall risk is why you need a free cash flow yield. Uh, and so I, I think looking at something relative to the image of something else can be useful. And, I, and there was a, a final paper I'll mention on this, uh, William, is that there's a, a professor by the name of Bessenbinder who um, did a study of all stocks in the CRISP database since 1926 and um, found that the average stock had actually underperformed T-bills um, and that most of the risk premium in the stock market had come from a small number of stocks, um, thus the importance of some element of diversification. But the irony is that gold has outperformed T-bills. And so... Most stocks, crazy as it would seem, on average, underperform gold. And that's a kind of counterintuitive thing to get your mind around. But if you see that as a kind of paradoxical truth, it forces you to ask basic questions uh, about whether you're getting satisfactory factory compensation for the fade risk, the beta risk, and the agency risk of an individual company. You've had a pretty significant position in gold for over a decade as a potential hedge against financial catastrophe and massive market meltdowns and, and the like. And a lot of people are, obviously have um, been touting Bitcoin, although a little bit less loudly lately, as a potential hedge against fi financial chaos and, and the vulnerability of man-made currencies. Can you talk about why you believe gold is a much better thing to own as part of a resilient all-weather portfolio than, than Bitcoin? Well, if we go back to the discussion on incumbency and old masters and, and, and vineyards that have been around for a thousand years, you know, gold has survived the test of time. It does exist. 
it has a unique incumbency on the periodic table in terms of real assets. It's got unique chemical attributes and it will exist. So inherently, um, there's a, uh, a duration to gold um, that is longer than uh, most things that, that, that we would look at. Um, you know, the second thing I would say is that gold is not legal tender today, uh, but it's a perpetual call option on being money. And as such, you'd expect it to be at its most valuable when the quality of uh, human-made money is at its weakest. And, and what we've seen since the Bretton Woods Agreement broke down in the early 70s is that while T-bills have compounded out at 5%, money supply in the US has grown at 6%, and gold has compounded out at around 8%. So what's happened is that even though it doesn't offer a yield, because it's in scarce supply, it's, it's met the rising tide of money supply. And it's, in fact accreted a little bit because the quality of human-made money, the alternative, has gone down. We have larger mid-cycle fiscal deficits and lower mid-cycle real interest rates. And so gold, from a very long-term standpoint, has served a, a powerful hedge role uh, in, you know, in, in our portfolios. And the question is, you know, has, has gold met its match in Bitcoin, is gold, like everything else, subject to a different form of substitution? It may be dominant in the context of the periodic table, but is there this new uh, invention that, that, that renders it useless? Well, well, the simple answer is we, we don't know. What I will say is that um, Bitcoin is 13 years old, like gold that exists, and I think it should be taken seriously because it is the largest um, compute network in the world. It, it dominates um, even the scale of the Google server network um, by order of magnitude. And so Bitcoin is an interesting, it, you know, it was a man-made creation, but it's kind of had some sort of emergent reality to it, if you will. And there's a vibrant ecosystem that's formed around it. And its incumbency is valuable. Um, the fact that it was first um, and the fact that it has attract, attracted the most market cap and the greatest compute power from a second order standpoint makes it more secure than any competing uh, cryptocurrency. So being first matters. And Peter Thiel has this great expression. He said, every moment in business happens only once. Um, and so the fact that it was first and is at scale uh, means that it is the most secure distributed blockchain. And, and really what you're buying is title to that digital asset as a service, right? And, um, and so I think you know, one has to take it uh, seriously. Having said that, um, even if it's on a path to being as important as gold long-term, right now, I think it's rational that it trades at a discount to gold. It, you know, it's, it's young, it's only 13 years old. It hasn't been around for thousands of years. So I'd say the fact that it exists doesn't mean it will definitely exist, uh, it, but it's the leading contender to potentially exist in, in the crypto space. And so, you know, go, Bitcoin, if gold is a is a perpetual option on being money, Bitcoin is an option on an option, right? It's a, an option on being digital gold, right? But right now, because of the early stage of its adoption, it doesn't trade like gold. You know, gold has a very tight inverse correlation with real interest rates. Um, you know, when stocks have had lost decades, gold has tended to have its best decade. So it has a demonstrated track record as a potential hedge asset. Bitcoin because it's younger and it's been in an adoptive phase, has traded much more like a growth equity. Now, if it succeeds in its destination, its trading character should become far more mundane over time and much more like gold.
but right now it trades uh, like a growth equity. So the fact that um, it faces unknown risks, you know, agency risks, uh, as we discussed before, like the minor community has to continue to exist. Uh, or it cannot be dominated by um, a pool of over 51% of miners for Bitcoin to exist. The fact that it has to survive unknown challenges, there may be a state that plants uh, malware in in the ASICs chip for Bitcoin. We just don't know. Um, It has to survive what is going to be the test of quantum computing, uh, which is going to change the efficacy of the underlying hash protocols for Bitcoin. So there are a range of different challenges that Bitcoin has to uh, endure, and we're just going to have to let time play out. But until, until it does, it's, it should trade at a discount to the aggregate market cap of gold. You know, having said that, two things can, can coexist at once. Um, ovens and microwaves coexist. You know, when most wealth before the Industrial Revolution was stored in real assets, land, art, precious metals, livestock. And then we, we created all these financial assets, which were essentially the, the crypto of the time. They were virtual claims. You know, the original companies were beneficial claims of trusts on underlying assets. And so this was kind of arcane and abstract at the time. But financial assets came to coexist alongside real assets. They didn't disrupt totally. They coexisted. And if digital assets or another concentric circle around financial assets and real assets, um, it doesn't mean that real assets will disappear, and it doesn't mean that all financial assets will disappear. Uh, I think what we're going to see is the emergent coexistence, and I think what Bitcoin might have done is increase the demand for private money. I think people have questioned the quality of the monetary architecture after COVID uh, with inflation, with low real interest rates, with big fiscal deficits. And if Bitcoin were to face any of these existential challenges, um, money that's invested there um, could look for other forms of private money, such as gold. And so if I were just a Bitcoin holder, I'd want to own some gold as a potential hedge, Bitcoin's existence. But I could also understand if you held a lot of gold, why you might want to own a small amount of Bitcoin as insurance against it actually working and taking away some of the monetary market cap of gold. Final thing I'll say is that gold will always have some value its base layer of value for, for jewelry um, and as a perpetual uh, item of adornment, uh, which, which Bitcoin won't have if it doesn't have value as a monetary medium. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise Flagship Fund to your portfolio in just minutes with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com WSB. That's fundrise.com WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. That's where you can earn 5.1% APY with a high yield cash account. While we can't say for certain it's the highest interest rate there is, we can say this. It's a higher rate than Robinhood, a higher rate than SoFi, a higher rate than Ally, a way higher rate than Bank of America and Chase, a higher rate than Citi, Wells Fargo, Discover, and it's a higher rate than American Express too. 
So if you want to start earning 5.1% APY on your cash, check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance. Neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. U.S. only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify dot com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show. My sense is that you feel like the US dollar may be at some kind of major turning point where it's at risk of losing its status as the world's reserve currency. And I wonder if you could talk about that a bit, because obviously, as you just mentioned, there are all of these these kind of fault lines in the economy. Um, and it's very hard for us to judge what's temporary and what's permanent. And lo- lots of people have been seeking safety in the dollar as this kind of uh, safe haven. And so weirdly, the, despite all of the reckless fiscal behavior and monetary behavior, the dollar seems to be an amazingly strong can you unpack this a little for us and, and explain why you're worried about the US dollar long term? Let me start out by saying that, you know, having grown up in Papua New Guinea and Australia, I'm enormously grateful to be able to live and work in America. I mean, it's, it is the ultimate sort of pluralistic melting pot of different ideas and markets and, and property rights. And I think there's no question in my mind that the US is going to be an important economy uh, for, for decades to come. And, and I, you know, I want to be part of this and I want my children and their children to be part of this, this narrative. Having said that, there are windows of time where there's a difference between a, a good economy and a, and a good currency. And you know, one, one of the challenges we face is that all of the characteristics have made up for the inherent resilience of the United States may, may be pretty fully priced right now. Um, when we look at the world of equity markets, U.S. equities are nearly 70% of the world equity index. Um, but we're 
5% of the world's population. So at some point, the relative merits of, you know, U.S. equities ought to be recognized, but are they being over-recognized is a fundamental question. You know, the market trades at a premium to the rest of the world. Margin structures have been uh, higher than the rest of the world here, but arguably benefiting from the easiest policy. And so when you come back to investing, it's it's like going to the the, the races. You know, you're not betting on the best horse necessarily. It's, it's the horse that's better than other people think it is. And if you look at the world of equities, people think the US is the best and, and they're really reflecting that in, in valuations. But it's not just equities, it's the currency. Um, the US dollar makes up nearly 60% of world's currency reserves. And, you know, that's just not a sustainable equilibrium long-term. And, and the dollar has been the sort of risk-off currency of choice, uh, particularly in, 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 in this last crisis, because uh, our energy independence is manifest relative to, say, Europe or parts of Asia. But what that means is in real terms, the dollar is pretty much at a generational high versus key currency crosses, whether it's euro or sterling or the yen or the Chinese currency. So the, the US dollar doesn't offer much value. It's already fully stocked in the reserve mix of you know, inst- you know, uh, international monetary authorities. And there was a risk um, that unfolded in the wake of the Russian invasion of the Ukraine, and, and that is that we sanctioned the ability of the Russians to access their dollar reserves. So if I'm China today, am I as incentivized to accumulate dollar reserves as I was before if they were sanctioning? You know, perhaps the Chinese might be more inclined to buy a real asset like gold. Secondly, the US, for all of its advantages, runs a trade deficit in excess of 4% to GDP, which is expanding. All of the major currency crosses, the Eurozone, Japan, China, and current account surplus. Over time, uh, currencies with large trade deficits tend to be on a depreciating trajectory, not an appreciating trajectory. And so you might ask, well, if the currency is expensive in real terms and has a trade deficit, why has it been strong? And I think what explains that in the short term, other than uh, risk perception going up, is that the US has offered some interest rate carry to some of these other regions of the world. But what's important to note is that we have far higher wage growth in the United States than we do in most of those other areas. And so in real terms, the interest rate carry is not that attractive. And so, you know, I have a fundamental question in my mind uh, over the next five to 10 years um, about the equilibrium value of the dollar. I think if you're not offering real rate carry, if your mid-cycle fiscal deficits are larger than most of your trading partners, if your current account deficit is large and growing while theirs is in surplus, and the currency is expensive, and you're already 60% of the reserve mix, one should be open-minded just from a position of prudence that the relative rating of the dollar may adjust downwards over time. And, and um, you know, I think this is uh, irrespective of concerns that people might have about the evolving political equilibrium in the United States. But I think it's just a, an obvious statement in some ways that the dollar has been preeminent, but it may be more than adequately reflected in relative prices. You have such a global perspective on the world, given your role in managing this, this um, global value team. Um, and so you invest in the US, but also in many other places. When you go around the world, I, I know you went recently to Tokyo and to Seoul. When you look in other markets, what are the valuations like? What are the opportunities like? What are the risks like? And if you're a a sensible, long-term, prudent investor who wants to position yourself well for the next 10 years, not chasing these kind of 
hot pockets of thematic growth, but just positioning yourself to get the you know, good valuations, good risk reward. Where, where do you want to be? Where do you want to be making sure that you're, uh, you're investing at least part of your portfolio? Well, I think it's prudent to consider diversification for, from a couple of different angles. I mean, we just talked about currencies. You know, if the dollar's at a generational high, knowing nothing else, it makes some sense to use this window of uncertainty in foreign markets to plant some seeds internationally. Just because one doesn't know for sure uh, what's going to be the dominant currency in 20 or 30 years' time, odds are it could be the United States, but it may not be for one reason or another that we can't even imagine right now. And, and a time where the currency is expensive is a decent time to be looking overseas. Secondly, I mentioned that uh, US equities in general terms, we're trading at a premium. The S&P trades at um, just under 20 times the trailing 12 months of earnings, whereas the stocks in the EFA are more in the 12 to 13 range. Now, that's a pretty big valuation differential. If you invert those and think about them as yields, an 8% yield versus a 5% yield is a big spread. The US has to really do a lot better than the rest of the world to make up for that valuation differential. And so not only is the currency relatively expensive, but the you're getting a much lower earnings yield in the United States than you are getting internationally. And you know, I would just make the, the, the third point that as great a market as the United States is, and I think it's a, it's a wonderful market and, and one that I'm personally grateful to be a part of, it doesn't have a monopoly on good businesses. You know, if you think about the businesses that we were kicking around before, William, they're all outside the United States. Um, there are certain industries where the leaders, the incumbents, outside the United States. Uh, and, and that's okay. You know, there's some great artists in the United States, but some of the greatest art came from Italy. There's some great wine on the West Coast of, of the United States, but Burgundy has some pretty nice wine too. And so like anything uh, where you're looking for incumbency and uniqueness and the metaphysics of quality, as it were, there are going to be manifestations of quality that exist in different parts of the world. You know, to, to give you an analogy, if you're Exxon, drilling in the United States may be attractive, but there's going to be pockets of oil elsewhere around the world. And there may be windows of time in the United States where from a regulatory standpoint, it's not that attractive to drill. And so the simple fact that the US doesn't have a monopoly on good businesses, coupled with the reality that foreign currencies are pretty depressed and foreign markets have lower valuations, means that I think one should be open-minded to having some amount of their assets invent, in, invested uh, internationally, just out of sheer prudence. And, and I think um, you know, that gives us the peace of mind to be looking around the world at different opportunities. Is and part it, it comes the, with a healthy- Is part of the challenge, Matt, that, that we always have this kind of recency bias where we assume that the next period is going to resemble the most recent period. And so everyone has become so convinced that the US is the place to be that in a way you have to have the faith you were mentioning before that the arithmetic will work out in the end. And you have to have the patience to actually stay long enough in these foreign markets that eventually you'll be right because the arithmetic will work. But in the short term, it's really painful behaviorally actually to say, no, I need to underweight the US and overweight these markets that haven't really been working well, that have been disappointing for so many years. And, and you know, one, one doesn't even have to go so far as saying, overweight the rest of the world and underweight the United States. I think it's just an open-mindedness to maybe owning some businesses internationally. You know, think about if you're a property investor, most of us spend our time thinking about the dream house we'd like to own in the city in which we live 
that's within our budget criteria. But imagine that you were geographically flexible and you could figure out your dream property in the 100 best cities of the world within your budget constraint. Invariably, something would be happening somewhere in the world that would let you find that dream property at the right price. Um, whereas if you just focused on your one city, you might wake up in 15 years' time and say, gosh, I never got the property I wanted at the price I wanted. And, and, and then the values have drifted up over time. And so I think just opening yourself up to the possibility of investing um, with a broader universe um, almost increases the probability that you will deploy capital uh, for the long term uh, rather than sort of waiting for the pipe dream, uh, you know, in, in, in one local area. And your question uh, as well on sentiment is a good one. Um, and I have no easy answer for that. It, it, it almost goes back to our discussion about value being out of favor in the late 1990s. Um, and, you know, it's very difficult to predict exactly uh, when that turning point would come. But by the time it comes, you know, it, it's often difficult to change course, right? And so I, I think trying to predict turning points uh, is, is something that a lot of people do. But if we go back to the gardening analogy, it'd be almost this, the same as trying to predict the weather every day. And I think predicting the weather is much more difficult than understanding the climate. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I think that if you're, if you're creating the garden, um, you want things that can work in, in, uh, across a range of different weather expressions given your climate, rather than um, just be geared to one particular uh, type of uh, weather. Uh, and so sentiment to me is, is kind of like weather. And, it, and when it changes, it can change uh, pretty abruptly. And I think when you focus on the arithmetic and you focus on doing what's right for the long term, it's basically saying, you know, we're, we're trying to adjust to the climate that we live in and, and get that right. Yeah, one thing that you, you said when I was interviewing you for my book, which really re had an impact on me, was when you talked about just you want to be more willing to commit capital to investments when risk is obviously being well-priced, uh, yeah. such as in late 2008, 2009. And it strikes me as a, a very similar to Howard Marks' attitude of, of just accommodating yourself to reality as it is. And so at a time when, when foreign markets appear to be offering, uh, you know, the risk appears to be being priced better, it's just sort of logical to make sure that you're fully diversified there. It's an interesting one because if we go back to the weather and the climate analogies a little bit, we actually deployed some capital in the United States a couple of months ago because the weather was bad. And what do I mean by that? Well, trading breadth was very narrow in the markets. Risk perception was very high. You know, implied volatility and options have gone up. Credit spreads have gone up a lot. And there are a certain number of individual companies that where the arithmetic made sense. But the climate still didn't remain that attractive. So we didn't get fully deployed. Um, and by the climate, I'm thinking of more structural measures of valuation. You know, where are PE ratios relative to inflation? Where's the price of the equity market relative to an objective marker such as the price of gold? And after this recent rally in stocks, you know, valuations still look reasonably full. And, and so while sentiment was bad, from a secular standpoint, the risk reward doesn't look that great. Internationally, on the other hand, you had both bad weather and arguably um, a little bit more favorable uh, climatic readings. You know, the valuation of markets was already uh, resonant with what you'd expect in a recession, not a soft landing. And currencies are at generational lows. And valuation of the MSCI EFA hadn't gone anywhere for a decade. You know, you, stocks have gone through a lost decade and derated relative to gold. And, and so 
you know, you're not just getting a bad weather day, but uh, from a more secular standpoint, the risk reward is starting to stack up a little bit better. Um, and it's not to say if we have a global crisis, you know, there's real problems in China. Europe's got to make it through this winter with potential gas shortage. And, and um, the U.S. has to absorb a recession, in, in my opinion. All of those things playing out uh, may lead all risk assets to lower valuations uh, at some point. Uh, you know, our crystal ball is foggy at best. It's hard to predict these things. But, you know, just because we see relative value internationally doesn't mean it will manifest itself in, in positive absolute returns in the short term. But what we can say is if we own a business like the ones we talked about with a reasonable mid-single-digit free cash flow yield that's got a track record of growing at a mid-single-digit clip and that's returning capital to shareholders and that doesn't have balance sheet contingency, held for long enough, we'll get you know, decent arithmetic relative to owning a bond with a low single digit return. One thing that's really notable to me about your portfolios is that you seem to have very low exposure to China. And I, I was talking to Howard Marks on the podcast a few months ago, and he was saying a lot of people will say, well, I've got, I've got China covered with a 2% allocation. And he said, but look, if China is important and it's going to be the world's biggest economy, a 2% allocation just isn't going to move the, the needle. He's like, it's not enough just to say you participated. And I'm wondering how you think about China and how you, how you balance caution and courage and, and weigh the, the tremendous opportunities, but also kind of the, the really unpleasant risks that we've become more conscious of, I think, in the last year or so. Well, it's not, it's not clear to me that China will become and even if it does sustain its position as the world's largest economy. And, and I think a lot of people are presuming that will happen, but it's not clear to me that that happens. You know, I think one of the things that's interesting is if you look at a list of emerging markets and uh, 50 years ago and look at a list today, very few emerging markets actually emerge. And there's a whole host of reasons for this. And there's, in fact, there was an interesting book on this. Called, called Why Nations Fail uh, by Robinson and I think Asimoglu, uh, MIT economist. And one, one of the tales of a country that's managed to sort of grow and, and benefit from capitalism and the spread of property rights and all those sorts of things is an inherent pluralism and a political process that gives voice to multiple constituencies. And um, historically, at least, if, if you haven't had that, it's been difficult to sustain growth um, to develop market levels. Uh, and, and ultimately, if you have some form of authoritarian regime, it, it's impeding to the very notion of creative destruction. Because if there's a rent-seeking regime, it has to retard at some point in time creative destruction to preserve its own existence. And so I think if you were to ask, if Hayek still lived, uh, and you were to ask him, will China become and sustain its position as the world's largest economy, I think he'd be very wary of making that prediction. And so I, I think that China is beset with quite a few problems right now, um, despite the fact that there are opportunities. You know, there's this self-inflicted wound with the uh, COVID policy response and the lockdowns. There is dramatic uh, adjustment going on in the real estate sector, and, and that market is, is very overbuilt. And, you know, they had a, a, a clampdown on the entrepreneurial class, um, and, and which has really led to sort of a, a derating of that sector. Now, it doesn't mean that we won't find select opportunities. You know, we do have some investments in uh, Hong Kong property holding companies that trade at less than 50% of the underlying private market value of their real estate. And where Hong Kong may not be as vibrant as it was 
um, uh, before uh, it, it came under the influence of uh, the, the Chinese Communist Party. But it's likely to still have some relevance relative to, say, uh, um, Shanghai and Beijing as a, as a, a capital export uh, center for, for China. Likewise, we've made some small investments in some of the internet platform companies in China that have very entrenched market position and where we were able to deploy capital at a single digit multiple of EBIT um, and, and where we have a, a lot of latency in potential margins and, and valuation. Uh, but these are very small and select investments. I will make the point though that China is so big that you can't avoid it. Uh, you know, they're the largest producer of many goods and one of the largest consumer of many commodities. And, and so if China goes through a tough adjustment here, I think the world will feel it. Uh, just as if the United States goes through a recession or Europe as a whole goes through a recession. And so, you know, I would say that we've, we've been cautious on China and bottom up with, you know, many of the companies we've looked at just haven't had the free cash flow conversion or the management discipline that we've looked at, but we're open-minded. Um, but it's, it, you're, you're right to say that it's been a very small part of our portfolio. And you seem pretty concerned as a as a fan of Thucydides and his uh, his views on history. You seem pretty concerned about some kind of uh, mounting inevitability to a, a conflict between uh, the U.S. and China, sort of echoing the Spartan Athenian kind of conflict that that we saw thousands of years ago. Well, I think if you read Thucydides, uh, I think what's compelling about it is that you know it was written before 400 BC, and a lot's changed since then. Obviously, technology is dramatically different today from, from what it was back then. Um, you know, on the other hand, human behavior and human wiring hasn't changed that much. And, and I, I, I get the analysts on our team to read the book because it shows you the common mistakes that people make. Hubris, dogma, acting uh, with haste. And, I, and I, I, I use that as a template to get people to think about doing the opposite with their temperament, um, being, having the humility to accept uncertainty, being a patient investor, uh, being flexible, you know, not dogmatic about just investing in one particular part of the world or one particular industry. And so, you know, I think there's a lot we can learn from Thucydides. And I think what he, what he sort of showed us is that the fear of war is often the cause of war. And, you know, especially when you have two competing regimes, and I, I certainly hope uh, we don't see that emerge, but uh, Nancy Pelosi's visit uh, to Taiwan and, and the response, um, you know, is, is clearly f- flashing some warning signs here that I think, you know, we can't ignore uh, in, in totality. One of the things that's striking to me that's very distinctive about you, Matt, is you, you're reading these books like Thucydides, you're reading Stephen Wolfram on physics and, and complexity and the like. You're, you're drawing ideas from all of these places. And, um, and kind of thinking through these ideas about um, uh, gold and resilience and uh, entropy and the like. And I'm curious about how you, how you actually gather and synthesize this data. You, you've talked to me about um, how you have, I, I think, in your phone and your iPad, like thousands of pages of ideas and mental models that, that you've written over the years and you're constantly refining and you mentioned the phrase um, once to me of uh, it's like raking your Zen garden. Can you talk about how you do this, this habit? Because it's such a it's such a distinctive part of the way you operate in life. So I think the first thing is you have to create time to reflect, and you know it's a, that's easier said than done. Uh, we all have busy schedules, 
you know, we could all spend all of our time doing a subset of our jobs. And so, first of all, you just have to, in the mental hierarchy of things, acknowledge that some time spent on reflection is important. And in fact, you know, as I think about it, uh, you know, what if I were a client, uh, what would I want Matt or any of the team members to be um, spending their time on? And I, you know, I'd want them to be spending some meaningful amount of their time on, on reflection so that they're seeing the world through a different prism. The second thing is that it doesn't happen linearly, even though I try to religiously schedule some time for reflection on certain days of the week or certain times of the day, reality intervenes frequently. Um, and so you have to squeeze it in while you can, um, but it's, and it's not even linear in that context. So I, I might go through some years where I'm reading voraciously. I read you know, many books in a year, and then I go through other years where I, I, I get into four or five books, but I don't complete any, and I'm actually spending most of my time, to your point before, raking the Zen garden, trying to order my thoughts. And um, you know, I, I do keep uh, many notes uh, that uh, essential attempts to sort of distill um, what I've learned from, from different works and tying it together in a philosophy that makes sense. And you know, sometimes I'll wake up at five o'clock in the morning and I'll just spend two hours trying to refine one element of a mental model. Um, and so, you know, it's, it, part of it is, is creating time to absorb new ideas, um, many of which have come from um, great people um, uh, that you never got the chance to meet, uh, but you can at least read their books. And the other part that's equally important is to synthesize, you know, and it's the same notion. If you're going to visit a company that you, uh, you're going to Tokyo and visiting a bunch of companies, you have to spend the time preparing for it and, and the time to make sense of what you've learned after the fact. And so it's, it's not enough just to read a lot. You have to try and think about it and distill it. And, you know, it's, it's both of those things. And then sometimes you just get stuck. You feel like you're, you know, you, you're, you're not necessarily making a leap forward in your understanding. I, I don't know if you've gone through the process of learning another language, often it feels like you get this window of stasis. And then all of a sudden in a, Nonlinear way, you take a stair step, step function up and you're seeing things in a new light. And so I think often when you're feeling stuck, it makes sense to do something different, you know, to travel somewhere, um, you know, to um, do something physical. You know, I like to play backgammon against the computer from time to time. And sometimes it, it, it you know, it, it, it takes doing something different. A, a friend of mine, uh, Josh Waiskin, said, sometimes the ember needs to withdraw before the flame comes back up. And, uh, it, and so I think it's a combination of all those things, prioritization of reflection, um, realizing that it's not just about the reading, but um, equal measure must be spent you know, to synthesis and making sense. And then the final thing, recognizing that it, you know, it, it, it's a kind of uh, a step function process where you need time to step outside uh, and, and, you know, Lord Denning, one of the great English judges said, you know, let not uh, our, our vision be clouded by the dust of the arena. Sometimes you're just too much in the thick of something um, to make sense of it all. And sometimes you've got to leave the snow globe, let it settle uh, and then come back. Uh, and so, I, you know, those are the ways I try to do it. And, and it feels rather imperfect. You know, I, 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 I've been at this for decades now and I feel like I'm just beginning and I feel like I'm so far behind in so many dimensions uh, that it's, it's humbling. Is there a particular mental model that you feel like in the last six months or so is starting to take shape and you're starting to think, to have this sort of beautiful sense of revelation where you're starting to think, oh, that's what this means? Is there, is there something that's really um, striking you as more important than you'd ever realized before? 
Yeah, so I mean, I'd say a, a, a couple of thoughts there. One, when I made the comment before that very few emerging markets have emerged, and I've, I've been thinking about this a little bit, um, and you know, the process of trying to reflect on this and discuss it with our sovereign analysts and, and to read a little and discuss it with people I respect, you know, it has me sort of thinking about the absence of inevitability. I mean, we all went through that. There was that um, passionate uh, chasing of the BRICS theme. And I, you know, we were always pretty skeptical at First Eagle because what we were seeing top down and the narrative wasn't matching the bottom up uh, opportunity set. Um, but I started to think more about it and some things aren't inevitable. You know, the, the, the existence of, you know, uh, certain preconditions need to be met. Um, I, I guess, you know, other things have appealed to me. We talked about entropy you know, and, and fade, that's been a, a, a big source of intellectual inquiry for me over the last decade. But the first law, to, first, uh, law of uh, thermodynamics is about the conservation um, of, of, of energy and, and, and matter. And, and that's a little different because that implies something very different. It's, it's, it implies sort of deep symmetries. And like one of the, the thoughts that's been occurring to me late, lately is this sort of this notion of symmetries that exist um, in financial markets um, that have to kind of coexist for the whole to make sense. And so I've been spending some time thinking about deep symmetries, for example, a negative relationship between real interest rates and risk premia or, um, you know, be between nominal uh, expenditure growth and financial asset valuation, um, you know, thinking about symmetries that have to obtain for the whole thing to make sense. You know, that's an interesting area of inquiry. These Now, these are all kind of big picture observations for want of a better word, but then sometimes it's tempered with smaller, more practical revelations. You know, we talked about the cash audit in a business and, you know, sometimes you, you, you do something a lot and, and you don't step, step back to really reflect on why it's so powerful. And, in, you know, that's something, been something that I've been going back to with a number of our holdings and sort of thinking about that. And so th there's a whole host of little things. There's, there's no one big game changer. And I think that's often the way it is. It's kind of messy and tangled. And, you know, you, you, you know, you're trying to uh, incrementally improve in a lot of different dimensions. There was something you told me recently that made me think that there's something here I don't understand where you clearly thought about this a lot and I need to unpack this, which was I'd send you an article about, um, I think it was from the New Yorker, it was a terrific article about philanthropy. And we were discussing that by email and you said something about the purpose we all serve is to help the universe perceive itself through our efforts to be excellent at something or to master the appreciation of quality in different dimensions. And I was thinking about that. There's, so, there's something really interesting there about like, this idea of the pursuit of excellence and fulfilling our own potential in some way uh, as an attempt to, to kind of contribute to the mosaic of human potential. But I'm so far from understanding this. Can you talk us through that for a couple of minutes? Because it seems like kind of an important idea. Well, you know, I, I guess I sort of come at this from the simple perspective. If we go back to uh, Wolfram and complexity theory, uh, something that was just like a blinding revelation to me when I read that uh, his book, A New Kind of Science, was that, you know, he was studying um, deterministic systems. So uh, what do I mean by that? Think of a, an Excel spreadsheet where um, a cell could be different colors based on the behavior of cells around it, but there's an underlying formula. And he did thousands and thousands of simulations of what the patterns would be for different formulas. And you know, what, what he found was really interesting, uh, which was that only a small fraction 
of the formulas produced linearity and most of science is built on regression and and um, looking for linear relationships but this is the minority of reality and then there was a bigger subset uh, but still small where there was some sort of nested cyclicality to the pattern but not 100% neat so think like the business cycle we know it there's an ebb and flow but we can't call it precisely and then the vast majority of the patterns of these cellular automata and these spreadsheets uh, were effect, they looked like they were random, but they were driven by uh, a, a given formula. And what's interesting is if something is linear, you can predict it in the future with a small number of observations. If something has a nested cyclicality with more observations, you can kind of predict the skew in it, but not necessarily exactly where it will be. But if something's truly complex, it would take you more observations than actually exist in the in reality playing out to to backwards induce the formula, and he he came up with this notion of the um, you know computational irreducibility that they basically um, even though there's a formula behind the pattern it's effectively random unless you know the formula because it would take you more steps to observe it than than to you know to figure it out and so I, the reason I mention this up front is that number one there's a realization that there's a lot that we can't know unless you actually know. And secondly, I start to think about the price mechanism, uh, you know, and, and sometimes the stock price is, is a lot smarter than the, uh, the weighted average IQ of the people trading it. Because if you think about it, you and I are trading a stock and we each have a mental model for how the world works. Some of my model is truth and some of it's noise, you know, back to the different um, patterns we we're talking about before. But by definition, the noise in my mental model on average should be uncorrelated with the noise in your mental model and the truth should be correlated. So sometimes the price is a more powerful reflector of the truth than any one person who's trading that security if you have enough people um, uh, trading it. And I got to think about this more broadly and, and you know, thinking about like, w what are we here for? Um, and, you know, what, what, you know, if, if the universe is this grand experiment uh, that's unfolding, in a sense, it's trying to perceive itself. Like, you, you know, you're looking at a, a cellular automata stream and unfold, even though there was a starting formula to the, to the outside person, it's, you know, it's, it, it looks random, but to someone who knows the formula, it's, it's, it's very ordered. Um, and, you know, it's, it's my belief that if individuals um, commit themselves to excellence in a certain dimension, um, if they're trying to appreciate beauty, whether it's in art or whether it's in athletics or whether it's in the, in the world of investing or any other field, what's happening is that we're increasing the probability that some part of our mental model is true. And by definition, that will be correlated with other people who are exploring the same truths. And we're spending less time on the stuff that's noise, um, that's uncorrelated. The aggregate effect of having 7 billion people do that on the planet is that, you know, obviously the system gets to a higher and better and more perfect level. But from a kind of, from a universal standpoint, if life is a form of kind of self-referencing experiment, then that experiment reaches its highest and best actualization if the different forms of life spend their time trying to be excellent at something. And, and, and so it was that through that long tortuous process that I sort of came to this belief system, which is probably totally BS to most people, but uh, nonetheless, it, it, it helped me make the decision um, to commit to excellence in a few dimensions. 
It's interesting also because so many, so many thoughts came up for me as you were speaking about that. Like, um, you know, the fact that in a way it harks back to your grandfather talking about your, your search for absolute truth in a world of relative truth. You know, the, this, we're always sort of looking for these deep patterns. And, and it's, it seems like um, you're, you're always faced, your approach to investing and life, it always accepts the fact that things are incredibly complex, complex and nuanced. And we're always sort of inching towards some sort of truth but not really sure and having to be humble. Does that make any sense what I'm saying? It makes, it makes a lot of sense. You know, and I think there are some investors who've done a great job seeing the world as more of a machine. And I'm thinking of like Ray Dalio at Bridgewater, for example. I'm more inclined to view it as an ecosystem than a machine. So there's a lot of nonlinearity to the way in which I look at the, at, at the, at the world and a lot of self-referencing feedback loops that, that create complexity that, that ultimately compromise your ability to predict things with certainty. But it's not a hopeless cause. You know, if, if you study Wolfram and you take away the conclusion that a lot of life is unpredictable, there's something you can actually do about that. You can structure your affairs to endure, you know, and um, you know, whether it's through diversification or having deferred purchasing power or having a potential hedge or bottom-up looking for businesses that, are likely to have lower fade rates uh, by virtue of their incumbency and, and likely to be more persistent by virtue of management teams that act as stewards. So it's not a hopeless message. It's just sort of recognizing that the world and the ecosystem we inhabit have fundamental unpredictability. And, and so, you know, you, 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 you can build a structure that's resilient uh, in, in the face of that. And if, if you happen to find something that's simple and predictable, well, then for all, you know, go at it, get concentrated, take leverage, uh, create a lot of wealth. But for many of us, uh, we may not be fortunate enough to have that blinding insight in a lifetime. And so it's more a question of structuring oneself to endure and, and to participate in the march of humankind. Yeah, that, that was something I, I quoted in my book that had a huge impact on me, where you said you, you want to be structured to participate in the march of mankind, but to survive the dips along the way. And as I pointed out in the book, that strikes me as a, a really useful mantra for investing, but also for life, that there's something about just recognizing the fact that we live in this um, kind of very mystifying, uh, unpredictable, constantly changing kind of Darwinian world. And you want to position yourself to survive. And also when you're going through these really difficult periods, both personally or professionally, to kind of know that you just need to survive the dip. Yeah, and, and, and be positioned to pick up one or two spectacular opportunities during the dip. Yeah. You also said something really powerful to me. Um, I quoted in the notes on additional sources and resources in the book, um, where you sort of talked about the fact that if it, once you accept the fact that the world is kind of flowing and changing in this very complex and unpredictable way, it means you, you need... Um, you need to f say, well, okay, so I can, set, I can accept all of this flux and complexity and uncertainty, and let me focus on my own internal equanimity, because I, I can't really control this external stuff, but I can control my own equanimity. Can you talk about that a bit? Because that, that actually seems to me a really profoundly important observation. I think it's, it's, it, it is very important because acknowledging that you can't control an external environment you know, you, you need to have a centered sort of internal locus. It's almost like the Stoics, 
right? And, and you know, you, you can have some influence, like, you, you, you know, you can invest in a way that you could endure a lot of different states of the world. That's, that's an important starting point. Um, but the other thing is, uh, is a lot about, um, you know, knowing, knowing yourself. Um, you know, you don't, you don't want to be forced to be in a moment of anxiety at the bottom of the market, and therefore you have to sell and, and convert a temporary impairment of capital to a permanent impairment of capital. You don't want to have so much margin debt um, that you're forced to convert, you know, temporary to permanent impairment of capital. So there's certain exogenous things that you can do, but then on the internal side, you know, I I think it, there's a kind of a um, a basic level of excitement uh, that that one sort of sees in in exploring the universe and and travel and 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 new ideas and interesting people. Um, and, and then there's, there's also, um, I think a balancing consideration that as extraordinary the experiences may be that you have uh, in your life, um, you're going to get humbled. You know, I, you know, you, you're going to make mistakes. Um, you're going to be double crossed by, by, by individuals. Sometimes you're going to be, you know, do you going to do things that are silly? Um, and, you know, I, I think just the recognition that we're all sort of, groping in the dark a little bit, uh, uh, you know, I think is, I, I don't know, it's in some ways liberating to, to do your best work. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. Well, I could talk to you about that question for another couple of hours. So I feel like I better let you go at this point. But Matt, thank you so much for joining us today. I, I've learned a great deal from you over the last few years and, and today as well. Um, not only how to think about investing, but how to think about life. And I've also just really enjoyed getting to know you personally and to become personal friends. So thank you so much for everything. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, likewise, William, you, you, uh, your questions always give me plenty of food for thought. And it's the French have this expression, l'esprit d'escalier, the spirit of the staircase. You, you know, you, usually it's when the husband and wife are having an argument in the kitchen and they turn around and they think about what they should have said as they're going up the staircase. Um, I'm sure I'll, I, I will reflect deeply on your questions and perhaps have better answers uh, next time we meet in person. But thank you for, for getting me thinking with these, these questions uh, and, and for your friendship as well. Uh, it's been a real delight. And you can always come back on the podcast. I'll always be thrilled to have you. So, uh, so hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll get to do round two in a, in a next year. That'd be lovely. Thank you so much, Matt. Take care. Terrific. Thanks, William. All right, folks. Thanks a lot for listening to this conversation with Matthew McLennan. If you'd like to learn more from him, you may want to check out chapter four of my book, Richer, Wiser, Happier, which is all about Matt and his famous predecessor at First Eagle, Jean-Marie Eveillard. They share some really valuable lessons about how we can reduce our vulnerability and bolster our resilience, both in markets and life. I'll be back very soon with some terrific guests, including Annie Duke, a former poker star who wrote a best-selling book called Thinking and Bets, and also the Nobel Prize-winning economist Robert Schiller. Until then, Please feel free to follow me on Twitter at WilliamGreen72 and do let me know how you're liking the podcast. It's always a pleasure to hear from you. For now, take good care of yourself and stay well. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.